Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. This will be a somewhat familiar passage of Scripture to many of you here tonight. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. And we'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse number 1. And we're going to read a, a little bit of a significant portion of Scripture today. And I hope that you came ready to be saturated with God's Word. That is our goal here, is that in all that we do, that it would be saturated with His Word and that we would place ourselves under the authority of it. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter number 30. If I could, before we begin reading, set the stage for just a moment, lest I have to read all of chapter 29 as well as chapter number 30. But here we are, we are at a place where David has not necessarily shown the greatest discretion. He has a great following of men who are willing to go with him, as it were, to the ends of the earth. Men that are willing to follow him into battle and to fight valiantly to the death. Men that are willing to uproot their families that they can live this vagabond and somewhat nomadic life as Saul chases them. And men that are willing to follow him, even his, his own folly. It would be important to note as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter number 30 that the reason that these men and their families have to experience such a terrible tragedy is because of David's indiscretion. Many times whenever we look at the life of David, we think that his only indiscretion was that which took place on the rooftop with Bathsheba, but there was one that came long before that on a battlefield as he aligned himself with the very enemies of God. He sought to follow after King Achish, the king of the Philistines, and as he was surrendering his loyalty from Israel, because that is where King Saul reigned, and now he is aligning himself with those armies, those armies of Aphek, which were against God's people. No doubt, if David had to do this over again, he would not have made the same choice, but nonetheless... Just as many of us, we'd love to go back and perhaps do some things differently in our past. Unfortunately, the past cannot be erased. And David's indiscretions led to great depression and despair. Tragedy struck. For while he and his men were away, another enemy crept in crept into his family and the families of those men. Their wives and their children were held captive. Everything they owned burned to the ground and no one was there to defend them. Let's stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we look at this passage preserved for our reading here today by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Samuel chapter number 30, and I begin reading in verse number 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, neither great nor small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives 
and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, behold me, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and six hundred men that were with him. And came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. For two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought David and gave him bread. And he did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. For he had eaten no bread, nor drunk any water, three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me. Because three days ago, three days ago, and I fell sick, uh, we made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, upon the south of Caleb, and we, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because all their great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recover, recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and herds which they had drave before those other cattle and said, This is David's spoil. Father, I pray that you would help us this evening. And Lord, I ask that your word would be understood. Empty me of myself, Father, and speak with great clarity and power, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. By the time we get to the end of the story, things don't seem to be in such despair. And that is often our problem whenever we peer into this God-inspired and preserved Scripture that we become so familiar with these stories that we enter into the beginning of them already knowing the end. Might I say this, that this is exactly how God enters into every story, knowing the end. 
He knows the end from the beginning and he knows those things which he desires to bring to pass. He knows the return of the spoil that he desires to give to his own and he knows the way in which he desires to do that. He knows every valley and he knows every mountaintop that we will ever experience in our life. And if you find yourself at the point of tragedy this evening, let it be known that God knows exactly what he intends to do with this tragedy, what he intends to restore to you, and what he intends to teach you in that journey. May we never be mistaken that things are out of control, for with God, they are always under the authority of His hand. God has never looked at a situation and said, oh no, what shall I now do? He's never been shocked. He's never been surprised. And yet He has remained in authority. However, we are not so. Tragedy shows up like the rising of the sun. It seems uh, at different times in our life, uninvited, unexpected, but nonetheless, there it is. I woke up this morning with tragedy on my mind, which by the way is a terrible way to wake up. Not wanting to get out of bed just for the memories and thoughts that this particular day, September the 11th, brings back to me. I think about the, the unsuspected moment when I first learned of what had taken place 21 years ago. As a soldier at Fort Gordon, I had just had the wonderful joys of physical training in the morning and we didn't have to run, we didn't have to do push-ups, we didn't have sit-ups or flutter kicks. And if you don't know what a flutter kick is, meet me after the service, I'll tell you and I'll show you and you'll hate it. Didn't have to do any of that. The early morning hours of September 11, 2001, instead, we had a wonderful game of flag football. Ah, it was enjoyable. And I can remember walking back to the barracks there at Fort Gordon, Georgia, Delta Company, 447. And I walked across the opening tiles of that barracks, glistening and highly polished floors. And I noticed that there was a pile of soldiers in the day room pouring out into the entryway. And I look in and I noticed on the television that there, were, there was a tower smoking and the smoke was rising all the way to the sky. And I thought for a moment that it was a movie. And I asked the other soldiers, what are you watching? And I said, it's the news. Well, it's amazing how disorienting a tragedy can be. It's disorienting because you didn't see it coming. You had a certain perspective of how the day was going to go and now as tragedy has struck, there's a disruption that was unanticipated. It's disorienting as well, not just because of its unexpected nature in terms of its timing, but it's disorienting because it's also unexpected because in our life we have built certain boundaries which, which govern the, the right and left limits, if you will, of what is possible in a day. Yes, we might receive a discouraging phone call from a, from a friend who's upset, and that's within the normal boundary of what may take place in a day, depending on your occupation. You have 
normal boundaries or the right and left limits of what could happen within a day. If you're a firefighter, you know that at any moment, the normal boundaries of your day may call you to action and you may see one there uh, consumed by fire. Or if you're on an ambulance, you may expect at the very beginning of the day to see one who is on that brink of life and death. If you're an accountant, you may see a number just a little bit off. The right and left limits, the expected boundaries of our day. And on that day, tragedy was so disorienting because no one expected this to happen because it was so far out of the boundaries of what was normally accepted and what was, no, what was usual in our life. I'd like to make a correlation, if I will, that this type of thing happens throughout the course of all of our lives. Yes, it was a global event what took place that morning of September 11th in New York City, but the entire earth was shocked and surprised. Yet there may be tragedies that you are experiencing or have recently experienced in your life that this nation will never be aware of. I am not so foolish as to think that there may be heart-wrenching and, and foundational tragedies that are taking place even in your life right now that I will never be aware of and perhaps this church will never know of, but they are as disturbing as any other thing that you've ever experienced in life. I'd like to open God's Word this, this evening and just take the occasion of the day to speak on this topic, on how to respond to tragedy. I chose that word respond very intentionally because many of us react to tragedies left and right. We react emotionally, we react quickly, and, and sometimes our reactions are not the most godly, nor are they the most helpful reactions. Sometimes we are going through an unexpected event or confrontation that maybe you wouldn't expect to call it or that you wouldn't necessarily call it a tragedy, but nonetheless, it has you upset, it has you disoriented in a similar way. And, and in the disorientation of that moment, you're struggling to know what the correct response is, so you're reacting emotionally and, and sometimes not necessarily spiritually. Sometimes when difficulty comes, we, we weigh the balance because we can be so hurt and so deeply grieved and we don't know what to do with that because so many times we hear, don't worry, be happy. We hear that we should be experiencing the joy of the Lord and, and peace, and peace. A peace, and, and, and we feel these emotions that are the opposite of joy, and the opposite of happiness, and the opposite of peace. And sometimes we, we get convicted wondering, are these feelings justifiable, or am I getting in the flesh? Is this the way that a spiritual man or a spiritual woman should respond? And, and then we begin feeling guilty because of our guilt. And we begin feeling uh, weak and ungodly because of our mourning. We need to examine from the Word of God how to, how to respond as God would have us to respond. And I want you to notice that 
Sometimes tragedy comes as a result of our own mistakes. So there should be no one in this room here tonight with an open Bible and an open heart that then closes their Bible and closes their heart because you think that your tragedy, your despair, if you think that it's your fault, you think that, that, that since it's your fault that these principles do not apply, let me remind you that David's tragedy was a result of his disobedience, of his indiscretion. And this burning of Ziklag and the carrying away of his family, it was a result of his mistake. So do not sit here tonight and say, Pastor Jared, I can't be comforted with these words. I cannot follow this method of response because my tragedy is my fault. Listen, David's tragedy was David's fault and this is how he responded anyway. So I want you to notice the first thing that, that we see here is David comes back to Ziklag and, and sees the smoke and the fire there pluming up towards the heavens and his heart begins to sink as he observes what has taken place as a result of him being gone and we read this in verse number four, when David and the people that were with him, they lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. The first thing that David did in responding to this tragedy is that he stopped to contemplate and mourn. To contemplate and mourn. I think it is important that we notice both of those things balanced here in this text. That there is mourning in verse number 4. And then David and the people that were with him, they lifted up their voice. And the Bible says that they, they wept. They wept until they had no more power to weep. This is not one little tear welling up in the eye of David and those that were with them, but this is a genuine moving, a, a weeping, a mourning. And the Bible does not say that they just wept and cried a little while and then they gathered around and sang kumbaya, but instead it says that they wept until they had no more power to weep. In other words, they got it all out. There was also this element of contemplation that went along with this. In other words, they're thinking, they're allowing their minds to process the details of this tragedy. Verse number five says, And David's two wives were taken captive in Hinoham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. Notice verse number five. Boy, if we're not careful, we get distracted with, You mean David had two wives? <laughs> That's not the purpose. We're not addressing that question here tonight. But why is that verse preserved for us by the Holy Spirit of God? This is a roadmap for dealing with tragedy. And David is both contemplating what has happened. He's thinking about it. He's observing what's going on and looking to what, had what has happened. And in response to that, he is mourning. He is afflicted because of this. 
The Bible says in the book of James chapter 4 verse number 9 that we should be afflicted and mourn and weep. It says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord before saying that he shall lift you up. You see, we ought to be honest with ourselves that there is a time for mourning. Even the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, that yes, there is a time to laugh and a time to cry. There is a time to rejoice and there is a time to mourn. And we as parents need to teach our children this we need to do it by example yes sometimes it is time to cry and grieve and mourn and I recognize that even with the loss of a loved one we believers we gather together and and we comfort ourselves together with the words of the coming and soon appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and we look to the reunion that we're going to have in glory and that's why the Bible says that we do not sorrow as those who have no hope so we approach mourning and sorrow with a glorious hope but at the same time it's okay to mourn the loss of a loved one. It's okay to see the loss of life or a tragedy that has come into our sphere either because of our own mistake or because of the circumstances which were put upon us and to recognize this isn't good. Here the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11 that we are to weep with those who weep and yes, there is a place where we should put away tears and allow the Lord to encourage our heart. And that is where we're going next. But there is a place for tears as well. There is a place for sorrow. There is a place for mourning. In fact, if we don't accept that, we could easily fall into the same mentality of a drug addict. Now, this may seem like a shocking example to you, but this is the mentality of an addict that they will experience no valleys. Their desire is to go from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. And as soon as they come off of one high, they must immediately find themselves on another mountaintop lest they experience the depth of the valley. But that is not how God created us. He created us both to experience the greatest of joy, but also the sorrow of the valley. We need to understand that this is both physically and mentally healthy, but it's also spiritually beneficial. For if you never learned that our God is also a God of the valley, then you will never learn our God. Even the psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why is it that he said that thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me? It's because the psalmist knew of what it was like to desperately need comfort. And here is that same psalmist. Oh, the sweet shepherd of Israel, that young boy David, now not so young, just following or, or just leading sheep, but now there's men and their families that are following after him with great expectation of his leadership. And he has disappointed them. 
He has failed them. He has caused great reproach and agony to come upon them. And now those that are following after him, we learn in verse number 6, are looking to stone him. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, and he was the one that was taking the blame for all of that. And I notice in this that David never once defends himself. Not once. Does he defend himself? He doesn't try to cast off grief or agony or mourning by saying, it's somebody else's fault. No, he says, it's all mine. It's all mine. And I think in every tragedy, if we're going to respond, we must contemplate and mourn. And in that contemplation, we ought to understand that there are some things that are our responsibility in responding regardless of what's happening. And in that contemplation, if I could make this connection to Deuteronomy 29, 29, as we dwelt there this past Wednesday night, that in that contemplation, there are some answers that you will never find. But the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The next stage of David's response after this period of time of contemplation and mourning is that he sets himself aside to consecrate and move. And then you say, well, Pastor Jared, that's an odd way to say that. Normally we just say that he encouraged himself in the Lord. But if I were to say that he encouraged himself in the Lord, first off, it wouldn't be as alliterated. But second off, He never answers how he encouraged himself in the Lord. Boy, don't you hate it when you come to a great great service and boy, the Holy Spirit is just moving. You feel so inspired of him and and you're ready to just walk out of the church and charge hell with a squirt gun. And and it is, I, I hope so much that you feel that way when you leave the services at Valley View Baptist Church. I hope that you feel filled by his word, led by his spirit and encouraged in what you've been given. I, I pray that that's how you feel. But there's been many times where I've gone out of the church just ready to, you know, charge hell with a squirt gun. It's like, all right, Jesus is with me. Let's go. And then I get smacked in the face by the devil. Normally it's right after vacation. Boy, the devil knows how to knock the vacation right off of you. And I go to, well, I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. Just like that preacher said, it was so inspiring. And then we don't know how. I mean, what do you do? Do you just say, God, will you encourage me now? I feel kind of bad about what's happening. This is how I believe David did it. Is he, he surrendered everything to the hands of the Lord. Did you know that's what it means to consecrate something? It means to set it apart for the Lord's use. 
Yes, when they had the instruments of the tabernacle, the instruments of the temple, whether it was the laver, whether it was the altar, whether it was that golden candlestick, they consecrated it to the Lord. And, and that process took sacrifice, uh, the sacrifice of a red heifer specifically concerning the tabernacle and the temple. And it took setting apart those things for the Lord's use. And as David comes before the Lord, we read this in in the latter part of verse number six. It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now this is the indication of how he did that. Look at verse number seven. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord saying, shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. But before he gets to the answer, there's two things that I want you to notice. The first thing is this, is that David does not take any of these things in his own hands. Instead, he puts them in the hands of the Lord. We see that he goes to Abiathar the priest and he asks for the ephod. That is the, the priestly garment. And here, David the king does something very unusual for kings of Israel to do, especially given that he's not even king yet. He's anointed, but not yet appointed. And he comes to Abiathar and he robes himself with that linen ephod, identifying himself as a priest before the Lord. You know what that ephod um, did whenever a priest put that on as he was saying I am not my own I am yours Lord that's what it meant I'm yours how did David encourage himself in the Lord he consecrated himself and the entire situation unto the Lord and I'll tell you this is probably the most difficult part of the whole process as we seek to respond to tragedy. That we would cast all of our care upon him, for he careth for you. That we would surrender everything to God, because sometimes whenever tragedy comes, we are so overwhelmed that we feel we must react to this. We must respond to this. Oh, we must do something. But before David did anything, he said, Lord, it is not mine. That's how I got in this mess in the first place. I and this whole situation, it all belongs to you, God. It all belongs to you, God. And I don't know if you're thinking it this way, but my mind just, just had this, this thought come to me. You know, how many times we say, Lord, here's this mess that we made. <laughs> it's exactly what David is doing. Sometimes we think, oh, we've got to fix it up before we give it back to God, almost like we're trying to wrap up some present, some gift to God. No, bring him your mess. Bring him your weak and broken vessel. Bring him your despair. Bring him your depression. Bring him all of that mess of your life and consecrate it. Give it to him. And when you do, this is what's happening. When you give everything to the Lord, by default, you are putting yourself 
yourself under his authority. And that is David's response. In verse number eight, he says, David inquired at the Lord saying, shall I pursue after this troop? In other words, David is saying, however I respond, it's going to be at your word, Lord. It's going to be at your Word, Lord, he put himself under the authority of God. And if we are to consecrate before we move forward, we're going to have to put ourselves under the authority of the Lord. I'd like to say this as well. Something that gave David the liberty to move forward is that he even gave his own guilt to the Lord. Now, if you're here tonight and you feel that your tragedy is your fault, I need to warn you. I need to warn you that you are in the gravest danger of never being able to move forward. For at every remembrance of your failure, it's nothing but a tool of discouragement that Satan is going to use to pry you away from the work of God that lies in your future. I've known so many that are completely deflated and completely debilitated because of what has happened in their past. How many times have we knocked on a door and someone answers and as we invite them to church, they tell us a story of how they were hurt in church or how they were injured in church or how they used to pastor a church and then this happened and, and it was their fault or, or this happened and someone did this to them and it was so debilitating that they cannot move forward. And as David consecrates this to the Lord so that he might move forward, he's saying, even my own guilt, Lord, I give it to you. If you're here tonight and you've got those feelings of guilt in your own heart, give it to the Lord. This is how we respond to tragedy. We contemplate and mourn. We consecrate and move. And when we move forward, we move forward in faith, believing. I personally don't think that anything in God's hands will fail. I, I just don't think it will. I mean, I think about those people in, in Scripture that put things in the Lord's hands. And, and it may have been hard for them for a period of time, but it didn't result in failure. I can remember of a, a little boy who put his lunch in the Lord's hands. And I'm telling you, that lunch did not fail. And it had a big task to accomplish and had a multitude to feed. Oh, I can remember a, a man who was coming under judgment. The same man that's here, David. And he chose to put his punishment in the Lord's hand. And yes, it was hard for him a, for a period of time. But the Lord then raised him up. And as the Word of God says in James 4, that if we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, that he shall lift you up. And if you're going to move forward, put yourself in the Lord's hands and he will lead you forward. There is no boundary that he cannot overcome. There is no issue in your past that he cannot resolve. I love the fact that God is not so much interested in your past as he is invested in your future. Yes. 
I mean, think about that. He pulled Moses out of a wilderness, and Moses was there because he was a murderous dog. He took the apostle Paul on this road to Damascus and turned him around and used him for the glory of God. He takes murderers and makes them men of God. And if God can do that with them, he can do it with you. But you've got to consecrate that to the Lord. Give it to him and then move. There's one remaining thing that I noticed that David did here. And I'll say it this way. That as we respond to tragedy, we contemplate and mourn and we consecrate and move. But our last and final step is this. That we celebrate and remember. We celebrate and we remember. An interesting thing takes place in this passage. And if you're paying too close attention, you'll miss it. The interesting thing to me about this passage is that it's in here. If I were writing a history of my life, I would not include this in here. I'd make myself look like a hero. I talk about giants being slayed and Philistines being overcame. I would talk about being anointed by the Lord. I'd talk about being faithful to my, to my dad. I'd, I'd talk about not touching the Lord's anointed. And, and, and I'd talk about leading my band of mighty and merry men. I'd talk about all those things. But I'll tell you what I wouldn't talk about. I would not talk about what went down at Ziklag. But then again, David didn't write the Bible, did he? God did. Amen. And there's value in this fact that this was remembered. And this was remembered to such a degree that it was rehearsed throughout all of the ages. Think about this. As this is being recorded, there, look at the top of your pages by the prophet Samuel. It's being recorded in the lifetime of David and the lifetime of those men so that those men could go back. And if they wanted, they could say, man, David, you sure did mess up here. And you know what David was able to do? He was to say, yep, I sure did. But look at what we did. And look at how God blessed. And look at how the Lord turned the whole thing around. And I believe that by the end of the story, since it was remembered, it could be celebrated. No, the mistakes weren't celebrated. No, the indiscretions weren't celebrated. No, the loss of life wasn't celebrated. The pain and the agony was not celebrated. But what could be celebrated was what God did through it and in it. And here it is, preserved for us today, but it was also preserved for them so that they could rehearse and remember the goodness of God in the land of of the living. And oh, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Next time, another tragedy showed up. And they turned back to those writings of Samuel. And they celebrated the fact that if God could bring us through that, then God can take us through this. And everyone in here has a choice to make whenever tragedy shows up. You can choose to react. 
You can choose to react and try to attack and defend yourself. And you can choose to react and become emotional and instinctive. Or you can choose to respond. And when we calm our hearts and we respond, we can respond for God's great purpose. For everything that takes place in our life is intended to be used by God for good. Are you reacting or are we responding?